Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, truly you are our salvation. It is good to sing to you this morning. It is good to sing praises to you and hear each other's voices as we lift you up and we enjoy the blessings of what it means to be in Christ. And Lord, to gather together to lift you up in song and in prayer. And now, Lord, as we look at your word in a few moments, that you would be not just glorified in the preaching of your word, but our obedience to it. And Lord, that you would use us for your glory in this world. Lord, that you are taking your gospel uh, through us, pleading with people towards repentance and faith in a world that is desperately in need of you. God, we lift up uh, not just ourselves, but other churches. We think of uh, Beaver Creek uh, Baptist Church this morning, that you'd be uh, with them, that you would uh, encourage them, Lord, that you would uh, help them as they uh, worship together this morning. Father, we pray for uh, Mercy Baptist Church in Winchester, Ohio, part of our network, Lord, that you would be with them this morning and that you would encourage them. Father, we um, lift up also the persecuted church in the world. We know that there's many of our brothers and sisters that are um, either being imprisoned falsely um, for preaching the gospel, um, and some even in fear of their own lives, that, Lord, you give them strength to persevere in these times, that, Lord, we take these things for granted as believers, that we get up shaking off the tiredness this morning to gather together to worship you, and there's many who are hiding in dark places just to, um, to worship you without, uh, with the fear of, of authorities um, coming after them. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen them, that you would make yourself known amongst them. We lift up specifically the persecuted church in Morocco, Lord, that you would be with them, that uh, while it's not necessarily a restricted country, uh, there's uh, much persecution there, and we ask for your grace amongst those people. Father, we know that the gospel has not gone to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And the Bible has not been translated into every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so we ask that you would continue that work. Father, we lift up the bit people of China this morning. And although they're a small people group, that, Lord, you would bring missionaries to them. That, Lord, the gospel would be preached amongst them and the word of God would be translated into their language. Father, we often feel helpless when we think of the unreached. And while we also have to make those decisions about how we will use our lives for the furtherance of the gospel, put them ever before our minds. Because while they yet have yet to hear, maybe there's neighbors of ours who have yet to hear. And Lord, that you would motivate us to be a part of your global plan to reach the nations until you come again. And so help us, Lord, put these people on our hearts that we would pray for them. God, we lift up uh, our world to you that is in much turmoil. We think of places like Khartoum uh, in Sudan, that you'd be uh, with that crisis, Lord. We pray for uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, both sides for Russia and for Ukraine, Lord, that you would show your grace. God, we lift them to you. We lift the church up to you in those two countries that you would draw many to faith in Christ through this, Lord, the opportunities that will be had um, are, are endless, perhaps. So, Father, would you uh, grant that? Father, we pray, too, for um, the recovery continually in Turkey and Syria and the 
earthquake response still going on there, many who are sick and homeless still. We thank you for those who have responded, building homes and shelters and seeking to care for those that have lost everything. Lord, we lift up the refugees in many places and those who have lost things even in our own country. We think of the natural disasters, Lord, and uh, the Florida flooding recently and the tornadoes this spring. Father, the grief that overwhelms so many of our communities in the United States after these shootings, the anger within people's hearts and the, the, the turmoil in people's minds. Oh, Lord, that we would be a nation that turns to you, that you would humble us, that we would cry out to you, that times of refreshing may come from you. Oh, God, would you be with those that are suffering and those who are uh, mourning today? Father, we pray for uh, those of us that are traveling. We think of, the, uh, of many who are, are still gone. Uh, you'd be with them, that you would encourage them in their times away. We uh, lift up those who are sick, Lord. We know there's still uh, quite a bit of pink eye going around and in our community, and so we pray that you would um, heal all those and, and give them strength. Father, we think of our expectant mothers as well. We thank you for them. We thank you for... Kaylee and for Ellie, Lord, that you would uh, be with them as they, um, Lord, um, come to full term, that, Lord, you would give them strength for their own deliveries, and, Lord, that you would uh, prepare these men to be great fathers. Lord, provide every need, Lord, that there would be no complications in delivery, but, Lord, that these children would come forth, and, Lord, that you would um, just uh, bless these families, Lord. We thank you as we saw in Sunday school this morning, the children are a heritage from you. They're a blessing. And uh, we thank you for them, Lord, in a world that's so dark. We thank you for new life. We thank you for these joys. Lord, we lift up continually our members that are in transition, uh, Lord, that are seeking uh, to have settled consciences that you would be with them. That, Lord, you would aid them, Lord, in finding church homes. And Lord, that you would uh, continue to work in our own hearts, Lord, as we continue through this year. Father, we pray for our church plant down in Wilkesboro. We thank you for Christ alone. Pray that you would give uh, Tim just uh, boldness to preach this morning, that you would be with him this very hour. And then, Lord, as he and Cindy get away this week to rest, uh, Lord, would you give them true rest um, to, to vacate as they go to South Carolina and just enjoy some time away. Thank you uh, for this time for them. Would you refresh them, we pray. God, now as we turn to uh, your word, um, would you be glorified in it? We ask for your help, Lord, because we know that we can read your word, uh, but we understand that it's a work of your spirit that not only helps us to understand it, but to apply it. And so we don't want to just look at your word as, as if we're just looking at ourselves in the mirror, but we go away unchanged. Would you help us to be doers of your word? and not hearers only. Oh God, we need you. And Lord, may your proclamation lift you up. And Lord, may uh, the one that speaks be not in the way that you might be glorified and we might be satisfied in you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we turn to God's word, you can go ahead to um, turn to Genesis chapter 13. I've been somewhat behind in uh, sharing some of the children's questions, and I have failed to do that the last few weeks. And so I have uh, two this morning that I want to share. Uh, one of them really is for, about Genesis, and then one I actually saw from uh, John's uh, message weeks back in March on communion, 
and I'll answer that one right before we uh, partake of the Lord's table later in the service. But uh, one of the children asked this uh, concerning the Tower of Babel, that how many languages were there that God separated and confused them into? That's a great question. Uh, the answer, unfortunately, is that we don't really know. We don't know how many languages that were really confused in Genesis 11. So that's a very good question from uh, the mind of one of our children that, that really is asking about uh, how many of those were dispersed in chapter 11. However, we do know that there's been hundreds of languages that have gone extinct, however. Most linguists have studied this for years. And so we know this based on history, based on writings, archaeology, other things that we find that there could have been as many as 4,000 languages back at the Tower of Babel. So that's an estimate. It's perhaps uh, less than that, but somewhere around that. Now, what's interesting is present day, I thought it would be interesting to answer this question, that there's still over 2,200 languages, separate languages, or what we would call heart languages in the world today. And it's very interesting that of those, um, many of them still do not have the Bible translated into them. So it's very interesting to, to look at. In fact, uh, if you want to read more on this, you can see me about it. But it's very interesting that even some trade languages are being chosen over other languages that are going extinct, even in our generation, that the young people are not speaking those. They'll go to more popular languages. So I thought that was a very interesting uh, question. So thank you for answering those. You children, uh, I do read every single one of these. So don't think that it, it misses my attention. Um, and I like your pictures too. They're really cool. I love them. So thank you for your encouragement there. We're going to turn now to uh, Genesis chapter 13. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? This is God's word. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, 
after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that no one so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. we have been studying in the book of Genesis, we know that Abram has gone off and followed the Lord. He has gone to a land that he didn't, had, had never been to before, that he was following in a way that was ultimately, we know from the New Testament, that was by faith, that he trusted God, he believed God. Further, we saw in the, our last chapters that God made him a promise. It was a four-part promise. And I'm competing with the air show this morning. Um, so hold on just a second. But uh, the, the four-part promise involved a nation that it was promised to him, a land that ultimately he was going to receive, that he would be a blessing amongst the nations, and that God would use him ultimately to bless further generations. And so this four-part promise we've already been looking at. In fact, last week we looked at the uh, context of them going in the case of the famine to Egypt. And we saw God's sovereign hand bringing these providential circumstances into his life. And it seems like the promise was in trouble here. And yet God spared Sarah. He spared her and God was able to uh, provide for Abram and the outcome was still God's provision. However, we saw that Abram's faith seemed to be lacking. Right here, then, we see this continued outline of really issue after issue that, that Abram is facing as we already have this promise moving forward. Can you relate to problems in the Christian life? Perhaps when you first came to Christ, you thought, oh, life is just going to be a lot easier now because all that sin and that struggle, that bondage is behind me, and now I can move forward in faith. And while in one sense that's true, in another sense, the Christian life is a battered life. And what do I mean by that? Many would say, well, the Christian life is a blessed life. And while that also is true, it's the context of these struggles that God never removes them from us. In fact, he makes us through them. And we see that in the, con on the context of Scripture, Genesis all the way to Revelation. God loves us enough to use the issues in our life to mold us and shape us to be more like him. In fact, it is his kindness that brings these things into our life. As the psalmist says, that God uses the affliction of the soul to purify the heart. In his book, Problems, God's Presence and Prayer, Michael Wells wrote uh, through Abundant Press many years ago in the introduction to his book, and he wrote this. He says, my life has greatly improved since I became a Christian. However, it has been and presently is not free from turmoil, defeat, times of loneliness, or even tragedy. In short, I still experience distress, 
I have learned, too, that this condition is not uniquely mine. I often disciple believers who are in the midst of family chaos, who are bound by sins they thought were put off long ago, who are under tremendous financial pressure, are contemplating divorce or feel that God is nowhere to be found. Their lives are, according to them, anything but abundant. And what is the reason for believers being in such a predicament? What case can be made in their favor? None of this is supposed to happen to those who want to, with all their hearts, follow God, is it? We have accepted Jesus as our very life. How can this be? Is there any good that can come out of such difficulties? Is there any way that to, to reasonably explain the roller coaster rides in and out of agitation in our lives? Could it be that the hand of God is somehow behind all that we experience that is disturbing and even perplexing to us? If only we could be assured that God is involved in our disappointments as part of his plan and that we are not merely controlled by our world environment, but maybe that we could also see and be encouraged in the midst of our problems. The promise is that we can be hardened or we can be hardened by these life circumstances and that there is a heavenly purpose, however, in all of these problems. Upon seeing the wonder the wisdom, and the simplicity of it, we will rejoice that God has blessed us with problems. And there is a divine ending plan for every difficulty. And when this is realized, we can learn to appreciate times when hopes are dashed and frustrations run high. I like that quote. It's really a paragraph that really uh, emphasizes his thesis in his book, which is really that God uses problems to funnel us back to his presence. And that God graciously uses the junk of our lives ultimately to purify us and sanctify us. Perhaps you can relate here to Michael's words. Perhaps you can relate in our text here to Abram, who is constantly having difficulties since he has gone out in faith to follow the Lord. There's been temptation to back around and to scheme as we saw at the end of chapter 12. He has been tempted in many ways. And in the text this morning, we see that there's no difference here for him. He's coming into another strife period, but it's also caused in particular circumstances. And so notice here that God is using these things to not only test and try Abram, but ultimately for God to fulfill his promise. And Abram is part of that promise. And so we know that Abram will endure. This should be encouraging to us as God's people because many times we know that God is going to glorify himself. We've got great theology. We know that God is going to be glorified, that he's going to be lifted up regardless of what happens in our lives. But I think sometimes we fail to believe that God wants to do that in and through us. And he wants to be lifted up. So let's look at this text in four points. First of all, We'll see God's sovereignty in our circumstances. We see them in Abram's circumstances in verses 1 through 7. Excuse me. Secondly, we'll see God's sovereignty in our conversations as we look at Lot and Abram's conversations in verses 8 through 10. And then thirdly, we'll see that God is sovereign in our choices, regardless of what they are, whether they're sinful or righteous decisions, that God uses them and he is sovereign in them. And then lastly, we'll see his sovereignty in his covenant promises as we see it reiterated at the end of the chapter in verses 14 through 18. So yes, we're, we're um, going to try and cover this whole chapter um, in one chunk here. 
So when we look at, the, at this this morning, let's, let's, let's consider what Abram is going on. Remember uh, from chapter 12, they've come back from Egypt, that uh, he was worried about Sarai, his wife, being uh, taken and him being killed because she was a beautiful woman. And we see here that God not only spared her, but he ticked Pharaoh off. But in the midst of that, he also gained a lot of things because of Sarah's beauty. And so here we see them coming out of, of Egypt, and we come to verse 1, and it says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had with Lot into the Negev. Now, if you look back to verse 9 of chapter 12, we know that Abram was journeying here before he went to Egypt. It says that he was going towards the Negev. In other words, God was continuing to lead him. He was following after what the Lord had for him. And then we come to verse 2, and it says, Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Uh, most of us couldn't relate to this, but it's amazing how much stuff that Abram had, how rich he was. And it says, as he journeyed from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place of where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. So you see the progression here. We talked about Bethel and Ai, the significance of that. This is kind of a, an outline in the Old Testament that even ultimately is fulfilled when Joshua enters the land many generations from now and conquers the land, and Joshua claims that as the ultimate fulfillment of the promise. And God blesses along the way, and all these, these um, nations are, are destroyed before them. And so it's a context of the Old Testament. But right here we see now that they are journeying through this, and he comes back to where they were, and that he had been there at first. And remember the, the altar that he had set up before the Lord. He worshiped. He worshiped the Lord. And this is where he called upon the name of the Lord. And so in the midst of very trying times that he just went through with this famine and coming back into the land, he hasn't lost focus on the Lord. Despite all the riches, despite all he has, he calls upon the name of the Lord. And his nephew, we know from all the way back from the genealogy from chapter 9 into chapter 10 and 11, we're watching this happen that Lot is mentioned here, his nephew, and he went with Abram, notice verse 5. And had flocks and herb, or, um, herds and uh, tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. Wouldn't it be so awesome to have so many possessions that you couldn't hang around your friends and family? Well, some of you actually buy land to be around your family, which for some people think that's crazy. They try to get away from their family. But they have so many possessions. Can you imagine? Now, we know a lot of this is agrarian in nature. Uh, because we have so many flocks and herds, you have to have food sources for them and water and so on and so forth. So the text tends to lead us in that direction that their possessions were so great they couldn't dwell together. They were constantly having conflict. And so the text continues, their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. So in verse 7 then, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And then a very peculiar verse here at the end, or the peculiar statement at the end of verse 7, that at that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Now, why would Moses, the author of Genesis, just plop that in there? It seems so out of place. 
Well, in our first point here, we look at God's sovereignty in our circumstances. That God, just as he brought the famine in chapter 12, we see now that he's brought great prospering of both Abram and Lot in such a way that it's causing problems. It's causing a conflict. For those of you who have great wealth, you know that it takes greater management and that it's always uh, a challenge, just as much as someone who is poor and has very little has another burden to bear. But either way, we see here in the text that there is a great conflict between these two families, and they're trying to solve this. But God is sovereign. He is working through these very circumstances And so at the very end of this thought, this is where Moses puts in here that the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. In other words, what is the problem? The problem goes back to the very context of this promise. All of Genesis has been pointing to it from Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, that there's going to become a seed that is going to deliver mankind from the state that they're in. The turmoil, the strife that humanity is facing since sin entered the world, since we felt the weight of that in chapter 3. And so God is working, God is providing, and yet it seems, again, that the promise is at stake. And why is it at stake? Well, we come here to this passage and we see that there's not enough sustenance for the great wealth that has come upon this one who is bearing this promise. Secondly, we see that there's enemies in the land. And not just any kind of enemy, these were enemies that ultimately would seek the destruction of Abram and his people. In fact, if you look at the context of of verse 13, which the author will come back to when he explains more about Sodom and Gomorrah, but that these men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Do you see the problem now? There's supposed to be a land, and they don't have it. In fact, it's not even able to sustain them. They're going to be a great nation, but Abram doesn't even have a son yet. There's supposed to be a blessing, but all he finds is strife. Can you start to relate to Abram here? We we come to Christ by faith, and we realize the the awesomeness of his cross, and we, we come in faith to him, and we bow the knee to him, and we receive the great forgiveness at justification, and realizing what he has done for us in Christ, and we think our lives are going to be just hunky-dory, a rose, a walk in the rose garden, and we find that all these troubles and trials come our way, and we get discouraged in the Christian life. Well, right here is a chronicling of God's faithfulness through a man's life. In fact, it happens dozens of times over in the scriptures. As we look at these men's lives, we can do one of two things. We can say, oh man, they they really suffered through this and it's great head knowledge and we can know the facts and all that. Or we can actually look at the scriptures and we can realize that these were given to us for our sake. In fact, 1 Corinthians, when Paul is talking to them, tells them that these things were written down for our sake, for our good, that we could learn from these. And so as we consider what Abram is doing, we see that God is working through his circumstances. There seems to be more problems than there are solutions. There seems to be more questions than there are answers. It seems like God's promise is about to fail, and yet Abram is calling upon the name of the Lord. So God is sovereign in his circumstances. Secondly, let's take a look at his 
um, conversation here with Lot and how they're trying to solve this problem, that God is sovereign even in this conversation, let alone all of our conversations. So jump down to verse 8 and look at what it says here. Abram seeks to uh, bring a solution, and don't we all? Then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take to the left, then I will go to the right. If you take to the right hand, then I will go to the left. In other words, Abram, being a good man, men look at the problems and we find solutions and we find them quickly and we try to apply wisdom when it comes to mind. And right here, Abram is seeming to make sense. But what is the problem here? The problem is Abram isn't thinking about the very land that he already knows that God is going to bless him with. And so he is really in one conversation asking Lot to go wherever, whichever which way he wants to, when Abram ought to be telling him where he ought to go because he is going to go the other. But either way, we see God's sovereign plan in this conversation because Lot ultimately goes to where the Lord is sending him anyway. So look here at the text. What is it that is east and what is it right? Or what is west, rather? When we look at this and we consider this, remember from the very beginning of Genesis, we've talked about this theme of going east. And if you don't remember that, go back to chapter 3, that when they left the garden, they went east. When Cain killed Abel, he went east and, and settled in his city and uh, built... Uh, uh, built the what, what would ultimately become Babel. Then we see even fast forwarding from there after the flood when Babel happened in chapter 11. Where did the people go? Instead of going across the face of the earth, they went and started building this tower in the valley uh, near uh, what, what we would call Babylon today to the east. We see Shemham and Japheth as they spread over the land. They went uh, every which way. And yet we see God's sovereign hand in leading all the family and of Shem's descendants and then Terah's descendants at the end of chapter 11 into who we now are dealing with, with Abram. And Abram has gone to this place. And so it's not an accident, I don't think, in the theme of Genesis that the, the threat is, is he going to go east or is he going to go west? And so he says, choose which one you will go to. In fact, the thrust of this context of this, of this text seems like the promise is at stake in one conversation, that it seems like it's going to go the opposite direction, and yet he's saying, you choose, which one will you go towards? And then look at verse 10, Lot lifts up, lifts up his eyes and he saw the Jordan Valley, how well watered it was. It was like the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. Do you remember Zoar? That was where this was, they were, they were going from. This was where they were to flee from. And it says that this is where the Lord, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's given the pretense here of uh, the reader obviously is understanding that this was something that took place in the historical past, which I think is a great apologetic here for the authorship of Moses, uh, because he's writing this 
um, and looking back to it. So it says in verse 11, Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley, and Lot, notice again, journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Parad in the Hebrew, to, to separate, to go different directions. And this, it too, is a theme in Genesis, that God is, is separating people for himself. We see that he's separated Noah from the wicked. We see that God is separating the line of Shem. We see God separating the line of Terah. We see God separating Abram from the rest of mankind, calling him to build a people for himself that are going to be great praise to him. God is a God who is working in the midst of human history and fulfilling his great promises, fulfilling what he is seeking to do. But notice he is using Abram to accomplish this, even Lot in this sense. And so we see that Lot chooses for himself all of this valley, and then Abram settled in the land of Canaan, which is where he was going to go, which we know was the promise, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So two lessons here. Well, and we see at verse 13 that the men of Sodom, as we mentioned, were wicked and had sinned uh, against the Lord. Two, two things I think we need to pay attention to here in this context. First of all, Lot looked upon and is simply living life by sight. The Jordan Valley looks great. It's fertile. Wow, my, my, my uncle's offering me the best. And, and this obviously looks the best. It's fertile. It's like the garden of the Lord, it says here. In other words, this is a clear decision I should make. This is the great place that I should go. But beware, O oh child of God, to go and live based upon sight. Is it not sight and the lust of the eyes that often leads us astray from the Lord? And while we want paths of blessing and we want to look to the Lord in what he is able to give us in him, and it's not always a dry, barren land. It seems in this text that there's one that looks very, very inviting, and yet there's the promised land that seems less inviting. You ever feel that way? On your road to the celestial city in your Christian life? That perhaps you're discouraged that people that have walked away from the Lord? Perhaps you're in a, a dark season where it's just hard to put one foot in front of the other? Do you ever feel like those who have continue we're continuing with you have have departed perhaps you're in a time of transition and you you feel lonely you feel so discouraged and confused you feel like what in the world is the lord doing in the context of my life right now how is he using these circumstances for his sovereign plan i can't see a path forward it looks like barrenness and all the while, the wicked seem to celebrate. They go unpunished all day long. They they're constantly seem to be living the blessed life. You ever feel like that, O oh child of God? Take courage here. The story's not over. God is with you. God is working his sovereign will in your circumstances, in your conversations. And while it seems that one conversation could have put the promise in great trial, God used it for good. In fact, he always uses everything in your life for his glory and yes, for your good, even your sin. 
it would be that we would be more dependent upon him, that we would look to him, that we would see our weaknesses, that we would cry out to him, for he is mighty to save. He is mighty to deliver. He is mighty to sanctify you from where you are to where he wants you to be. And so we see here that God is faithful in the life of Abram. He's also faithful in the life of Lot, if Lot would just look to him. But we see here that Lot is dwelling amongst sinners. He's getting comfortable, as it were, in this world. That The promise that Abram was looking to was not something that Lot was really interested in. Lot was interested in his own comforts, in finding the best. And so the lesson here is not just for, for Lot and what we can learn from Lot here, but we can also learn in God's plan for Abram that sometimes the walk of faith doesn't make human sense. We look at a land that seems so plentiful, that seems such the right decision to make, like the garden of God, and yet God is calling us to go the exact opposite direction. Isn't that the definition of temptation? To not believe God and walk by not faith but by sight. Dear child of God, watch for the, the storm that comes to the human soul that could cause you to shipwreck your own faith based upon sight and not looking to God in faith. So we saw his plan here in the circumstances of Abram and Lot separating and the problems surrounding that, his uh, sovereignty here in their conversation. And then thirdly, let's take a look at the context of their own choices that we have already begun here. So furthering on, what happens? So it says in verse 14 that the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place from where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. What's so awesome in this is that even in our choices, God is working his providence. Our choices, we sometimes like to separate from uh, our own experiences in the, in the sense of seeing how God uses those for ultimately his glorious purposes. And so here we see that God is reminding Abram really of the promise, which we'll come back to here in a minute. He's reminding him to turn and lift up his eyes, not to where Lot was going, but to where he was. And to look, notice 360 degrees here, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. There's no one, there's no compass, there's no greater love that anyone has for you than God himself. God constantly puts us back to where we know where we are. He dissolves the confusion of our lives and points out exactly where we are, even in the midst of our sinful choices, even in our faithless choices. God reminds us that he is there, that he is the one to be examined, to be worshipped, to be treasured, to be trusted. And so... He's sovereign, not in this conversation, but really the choices that, that Lot make, let alone that, that uh, Abram makes here. And so God points here now back to his covenant promises. What does he say after his position here? Notice in verse 15, he says, For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. Now that should trigger something in our brains. 
because this was already told to him. Do you remember this? He was told this back in chapter 12, that God would do this. You can turn back to chapter 12, verse 1. Remember when he told him to go? While he didn't give him details about it, he said this. He says, go to a land that I will send you. And I will make of you, verse 2, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. The beauty of God's grace being with us in our Christian lives is displayed here, that even in times of confusion, in times of our own sin, that God is with us and he reminds us of who he is. He reminds us of his precious promises, his covenant promises to us. And so we see here, he is calling him out to trust him again, that this is where he had brought him. This is what he had called him to do. And so he tells him to look around, verse 15, that this is what he was going to give them. And then look at verse 16. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Okay, this has been repeated now twice. It's being reiterated. The promise is being reiterated. Isn't this beautiful that when we are constantly sidelined by the issues of our own lives, that God brings us back to the gospel. He reminds us of who we are. We're studying this on Wednesday nights in the, the book of, of 1 Corinthians, that instead of bashing them, the apostle Paul reminds them at the very beginning of chapter 1, before he deals with all the issues of their own sin and the chaos in their church, he reminds them of who they are in Christ. He reminds them that Christ died for them, that they look to them, they've been delivered. Why then are you living like this? He asks. And isn't this the context of Genesis 13, we have this great glorious pro promise. We got this beautiful picture of Abram looking to the stars and God says, I'm going to make you make the, the nations like your nation like this that comes from you. You can't even count it, Abram. And meanwhile, he's living in a dusty place with a barren wife. Can you relate? We talk of the glories of heaven, the streets of gold, the glorious resurrected Christ returning for us, and we are dwelling in a land that is desperate and dry and weary, and people are worshiping every false god. Can you relate to Abram here? Can you relate to what he is going through in the midst of even a wickedness that his own... own uh, nephew is going to dwell amongst some of the most perverse people in the context of verse 13. And so he reminds them of his promise, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that no one can count. The, if they could count the dust of the earth, they would be counting your offspring. Verse 17, arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Notice how many times he said, I will here. He's reiterating the promise, and it's always with these two words. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And in the context of Scripture, whenever God says he's going to do something, he does it. It's not always on our time scale, but he does it. In fact, it's hundreds of years that take place between this promise and really the fulfillment of it in Joshua. Could it be that often we don't lift our eyes to the greater purposes of God in our own experiences and circumstances? 
Could it be that often we are looking too much at just our lives trying to understand what God is doing when God uses the very labors that we have and do in our lives to ultimately bless future generations? As many Puritans had preached in previous generations, preach the gospel and die. And like a seed that goes into the ground, it produces fruit. Oh, dear child of God, don't be short-sighted in trusting the Lord. You're not simply trusting him for your today or even your tomorrows, but ultimately you are joining a chorus of trusting voices calling out in the name of the Lord that God would be glorified and that you and all these that look to him would be satisfied eternally in him. You see, child of God, this decision is not just the temptation of whether you're going to go to the valley of the Jordan or you're going to go to the west like, like uh, Abram is here. These are eternal choices that every time we're tempted to sin, we are looking to the temporal rather than the eternal, that God is putting before us life and death. It's not about what you're going to be tomorrow. What are you going to be a thousand years from now? This puts a context for us in the Christian life to put our sin to death because it is having eternal consequences in our lives and others' lives. And so the joy here of this passage is that God comes along Abraham in these circumstances, in these trials where it seems like the promise is about to fail, and God encourages them. He reminds them of who he is, and not the circumstances is not what he's supposed to be looking at. And so he says, look up. Maybe there's someone here this morning who's been looking at all that is around them rather than looking up. And that God, like a gracious father, grabs your chin and causes you to look into his wonderful face and trust him again. Arise, he says, this command. Arise and walk through the length and the breadth of the land that I will give to you. Notice that's future tense. I will give to you. You know, child of God, we often try to live in the future, and yet God wants us to trust him in today's steps of obedience. And like a link in a chain, God will take each step of obedience as we're seeing in Abram's life to build something beautiful towards his kingdom purposes. And so look at this beautiful passage here in verse 18. So Abram, what did he do? He moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. It's just like this beautiful conversation, this relationship that we see with Abram and, and the Lord here. And so Abram responds to the Lord, and he goes back and he sets his tent in the land that he knows that God is ultimately going to give him and his people one day. And he settles here at Hebron. The significance of what God is doing in this land, that he, this is the land that God's people will dwell in, that ultimately the temple will be built in, that ultimately our Lord Jesus will walk into and lay down his life and spill his blood for our sake. One day he would do this. This is the promise that God was pointing to. The, the height of all the scriptures are fulfilled in this. And Abram is settled there like a weaned child, and he settles under the oaks of Mamre. You can almost feel the shade from the desert heat, and there he builds an altar to the Lord. He worships the God 
who is the great promise maker. Dear child of God, what about us this morning? What is it in your circumstances, in your conversations, in your choices, that you have forgotten the very covenant promises of God that he has for you in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you grown weary in doing good? Are you burdened by your own sin? God is here. He is near. And he's calling you to lay down that burden. Perhaps you've never surrendered to a sovereign God and you don't know the joy that Abram, let alone any of us, could possibly feel because you've never been freed from your sin. And I plead with you this morning, if you've never done that, if you've never dropped your sin at Christ's feet and said, oh God, forgive me, I'm a sinful person. I encourage you and urge you this morning to do that because only he can save. Repent of your sin. The times of refreshing can come from the Lord and healing at the foot of his cross. You will find a river so satisfying that all the troubles of this life will, you'll be able to dance through because of the joy that he brings to your human heart. But it doesn't ignore the very trials that we're studying this morning. But for many of us as believers, we struggled, your children, to continue the life of faith. Now, we know it as a great theological truth that God is going to cause the saint to endure to the end. We know that. We trust that. But in the midst of this, we see God preserving Abram. We see that. But we also see Abram's failures. We also see his failure of faith, the failure of trusting the Lord in the midst of his circumstances. And we'll see yet more. And the beauty of all this is when we get to Hebrews chapter 11, none of these struggles of faith are even mentioned. He's lifted up as a, a patriarch of the faith that all of his faith, everything else that was, was fleshly is not even mentioned there. In fact, the whole line of the hall of faith speaks of them looking forward to Christ. Why? My opinion, and I think the driving of the text of Hebrews is because their sin is no more. Christ has washed it out. Therefore, the joy of pursuing Christ despite what may come, the joy that is he's even paid for the sin that is yet to be committed. What an awesome thought. Can, can you believe that? Such beautiful love and persevering power in us. How is it that he would indwell us? And so, oh child, perhaps your joy is wanting this morning. Perhaps you are just looking at your belly button and your toenails this morning because you are so discouraged. You're just looking down. And God says, look up, oh dear child. Look at what I'm going to do. Look how I'm going to use your life to connect it in a beautiful tapestry to take the gospel to people who have never heard it, to use your life and to resurrect it so that I may display my son in you for your good and for my great glory. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe you individually are being saved for a purpose of God? And so be encouraged, dear child. God uses your circumstances. God uses each act of your life in his own special way to ultimately make him more treasured in your sight. And that that treasure 
would go so thoroughly through your soul that you simply become a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is his reasonable, his only reasonable service that we truly can render to him is to give up and get on the altar. And then it's through this context that God shines his glories through your life and through mine. And when you connect that great glorious plan individually and you put that together in what we call the local church, every community has this shining brightness because there's a group of people in each community that are treasuring God more than anything else and we're running away from sin and even when we do sin, we look to him because he has gloriously gone before us and paid that for us that we might be free from it. It's a glorious plan. In fact, God promises us in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell won't prevail against his church. There's no other human institution on planet earth that has assured victory than the Lord Jesus' church. I can't think of anything more worth uh, investing in and, and giving myself to than looking at the gospel, investing in his people, and taking the gospel to places that it's most necessary. So, what does that mean for you? Where is the Lord shining his light on your soul? Are you discouraged? Are you tempted? Have you sinned? Are you, are you just struggling there? Are you failing to forgive even yourself when you've already realized that Christ has forgiven you? Maybe you're worried. Maybe you're anxious about the future. All of that is dissolved in the beauty of looking to God's glorious promises which ultimately reveal his holiness and his character and the fact that god would do that this glorious god would come in the likeness of human flesh and die in our place is something that is so awesome that none of us can truly grasp it and so in a few moments we're going to come to his table to celebrate this very truth that we as his people can walk out of here knowing that we are his, that we are in his covenant, that his blood truly has washed our sin away. And our identity is no longer what we've done, but it's ultimately in the person of God. And he is our only hope. And he is only glorified if we leave this place thinking those thoughts. And so what joy there is in looking at Abram's life, in looking at how God separated Lot and separated Abram for his purposes and for his glory, regardless of circumstances, regardless of conversations, regardless of their choices, because of his great precious promises. Let's pray together. God, your word cuts to the very heart. It's convicting because it's your words. These words are not merely black and white ink on a page. For you spoke them. And as Moses penned them, they're not irrelevant. They're sharp. They cut into our own souls. We associate with Abram. We would respond perhaps the same way in chapter 12. If there was a famine, we would run to where there's food. If we had strife amongst our family, we would seek to solve it. It's just normal human behavior. We're seeking to apply wisdom and do the right thing and be reasonable human beings. And yet to leave you out of the equation is destruction, as we see with Lot in just a few chapters. 
Sodom will be destroyed and Lot barely escapes. Oh God, would you save us? Would you spare us from making sinful and stupid choices? When it seems so right according to man, but it's so wrong according to your precious promises in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage us in a world that is so lost, a world that is so, so miserable to live in, in a world where we see people and the effects of sin all around us. Oh God, help us to look to you. And as the joy of the Lord fills us, because you are our greatest and only treasure, that we would just be bleeding the hope that all humanity possibly can ever have because of what you've done in us. And literally, we will be walking testimonies of your deliverance, of your power, of your grace, and of your love. Oh God, would you challenge us today? I pray that anything that is hindering us, that we, as Hebrews says, that we lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. God, I pray for the soul that is discouraged, that feels like they can't go on. Lord, cause them to not be weary in doing good, but to look to you and be refreshed. God, for the hardened one in sin, Lord, that you would melt that away and that they would turn in repentance to you, that they would find today a, a reiterating of your great covenant in Christ because of the gospel. And as they turn from their sin, that they would find refreshment as they come to the table this morning. I pray, Lord, for any that are just uh, just feeling dead inside, just apathetic, God, that you would shake them out of that and help them to enjoy and see the joy of their salvation once again. And God, that you would use us to preach to sinners that they might find grace to help in time of need. Lord, we commit this time to you. We thank you for what you have done in showing us ourselves in the awesome mirror of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.